Today's scripture reading is from Esther chapter 3, verse 7 through 13, and Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. If you're using the Pew Bible, Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, can be found on page 412. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Azuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Azuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Azuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods." Now please turn with me to Esther 9, beginning in verse 1. This can be found on page 415 of the Pew Bible. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Azuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All of the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces." For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshendatha and Dolphin, and Espatha and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Viasatha. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, it is apparent to us in a moment like this how much we need you, how much we need to hear from you. I know nobody needs to hear from me, but we all need to hear from you. 
We need to hear from your son, Jesus Christ. We need you to bless your church. We need you to make your word come alive to us. We need you to stir up in us and the response of faith and love that you want from us. We need you to give us your great gifts and work them out in our lives. And we're gathered in Jesus' name this morning to see you do something powerful in our midst. We wait on you to do it. We wait on you to show us what it is that you will do on the basis of your word, on the basis of the work of your Son, in the power of your Holy Spirit. So we appeal to you and ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. I need to tell you that I have mixed feelings about parties and celebrations. And I'm just admitting to you, my reaction to parties and celebrations probably reveals something about me that's not what it ought to be. Because, you know, if I'm in a restaurant and they start singing happy birthday at another table, I don't get excited and wonder, wonder who the lucky person is. I think, I wish they would be quiet. I, <laughs> I, I wish they would celebrate at home. Or, or I think, I'm just glad it's not my table. Uh, you know, most celebrations don't float my boat. If I'm honest, there are usually too many depressing or discouraging things on my mind to allow me to just jump in the conga line, you know, and dance for, for joy. Now, I, I admit also that there are notable exceptions to what I'm saying for me. And, and those involve the celebration of things that are so big and so important that nothing else going on crowds in and is able to dampen the fun. And the most recent example of that for me would have been the most recent wedding party of one of my children that I went to when my third child, my second daughter, just a little more than a year ago. And our family's looking forward to another one uh, coming up very soon, my son, about to get married. Any of you parents kind of know how big of a deal it is when you realize that your child is married well, as I have uh, uh, several that have married well already, and I'm so grateful that that's what's happening. Uh, but I, and I'll confess this as well. This is prejudiced. I know it in this day and age, but as a dad, particularly of daughters, uh, you know that feeling. If, that if you can just put her hand into the hand of a good man and, and can offload that delightful responsibility <laughs> you know, with, with a clear conscience, you, you, you know there's a sense of joyful relief. We, we got there. We got there. And, and of course, it's true if your son marries well, as mine's about to do. Um, now, uh, I mean, I'm remembering that wedding party. Like it was yesterday, I was all over the place. I was all over that dance floor. I didn't have a care in the world because I was so moved by what had happened. Now, there were still cares in the world when I had that party. But the joy that I had about that event went deeper than any of those cares because it was a big win. And it deserved a big celebration. Now, something like that, I think, happens in the book of Esther. The people of God are given a big win. And they have every reason in the world to have a celebration. 
And, and they really need to celebrate the victory that they've been given. And I'm wondering about you, whether you feel like there's anything worth celebrating as a Christian today. I'm wondering if you understand that there is a victory that's already in place. There's a big win that nobody can take away. And that your rejoicing and your celebrating is fully warranted today and every day. I, I wonder if you would like to feel more celebratory and less gloomy in your day today. Because I believe Esther can help you get there if you listen to it. And if you're here today and you're an outsider to the things of God which are on display in Esther pertaining to salvation, I believe there's something here for you in this book that could give you the big win and that you could celebrate starting now and going on into eternity. So let's try to recap and sum up Esther's story. We've preached through the whole book, so everything's been said, but let's say some of it again. Now, let's see if we can enter into the celebration that's on display here. The theme is that I put it in your bulletin on one of these is that we must celebrate the victory of our delivering king who reverses fortunes through his death to save his people from their enemy. The first part of the message, as we sum up Esther once again, we called this series The Promise Stands, and we ought to remind ourselves what that means. The promise we're talking about is a salvation promise made by God. It's the deliverance that was first promised in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned. God promised that the seed of the woman would prevail in the conflict with the seed of the serpent, who is Satan. The conflict between those seeds that results in deliverance for fallen sinners started to take shape in history as God worked things out. Among his people, redemptive history began to unfold and progress. So that promise to save was shaped when God made a promise to Abraham. And that, that provided more details. He promised Abraham he'd give him a land. He'd give him descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven and as of the sands of the seashore. So God promised Abraham a land. And Abraham, in fact, entered the land that God promised him. But he kept looking forward for that promise to come to fullness. And that same pro promise, that same conflict, took more shape as God rescued the descendants of Abraham years later who were in slavery in Egypt. You remember those stories. Under Moses, God rescued Israel and gave them a land and a nation, a nation constituted by his law. But they, they were still possessors of a promise that wasn't based on that law. And so this same promise remaining in effect, it took further shape when God promised his people a king. Oh, so that's how you're going to do it. A king who would defeat enemies for them. A king who could provide peace for them. <clears throat> king David brought to pass an installment of deliverance. He defeated God's enemies. But a better king than David was the one that was being promised. David, in fact, himself was promised that a descendant of his own would sit on the throne and possess 
the kingdom forever. And that David would finally see that. But we know the story. The sin of Israel in violation of God's covenant under Moses resulted in covenant curses being enacted. The people were defeated by their enemies. They were sent into exile as God's just punishment for their unfaithfulness. Why am I telling you all that story? It's because that's where the story of Esther resides. In the unfolding drama of redemption. Esther chapter 2 and verse 6, you don't have to turn, but it reminds us, uh, it introduces to us Mordecai, it says, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. So the nation is in exile. In Esther's day, Israel is in exile. So it appears to them that all hope is lost. The promise isn't going to happen. How could that salvation come now after all this? There's no kingdom. There's no king. Now, in Esther's day, we know from other history in the Bible that some Jews had started to make their way back from captivity, scattered around as they were, back into the promised land. There was some effort at building a temple, but it still really looked, especially to the people of Esther living in the Medo-Persian Empire. It just looked like the deal was off. These exiled Jews had every human reason to think that God was no longer for them. That's what I'm trying to set up for you. How could God be for us? Look where we are. And Esther's story reminds them and reminds us that God's promise stands. So what happened next? Well... According to the shape that God's promise began to take, God raised up a better king for them, didn't he? That, that, that conflict between the seeds that was predicted in the garden has become the conflict of kings and kingdoms in the time of Israel. And Esther reminds us, the story and the way it's written reminds us of Israel's failed kings. Israel's first king was a terrible failure. And the story reminds us of that pointedly because Esther chapter 2 and verse 5 introduces to us Mordecai who is the descendant of Benjamin. Benjamin, the same tribe from which Saul, the first king of Israel, came. And you put that alongside the fact that chapter 3 and verse 1 in Esther introduces to us Haman, the Agagite, Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And they're in direct conflict with Israel, the Amalekites. Because in 1 Samuel 15, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but this story is pertinent to to Esther's story. Israel's first king, Saul, the Benjamite, was commanded by God to deliver Israel from her enemies. He was specifically commanded to go and kill all the Amalekites who had harmed Israel, hindered them, hampered them when they were on their way to the promised land. So kill them all, men, women, and children, And destroy all the possessions. But Saul, the king of Israel, disobeyed God. He spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And he kept back some of the best of the plunder. Purportedly to give it to the Lord as a a gift, as a sacrifice. So this led to God rejecting Saul as king. This isn't the king you need. 
That's when he sent the prophet Nathan, uh, prophet uh, uh, Samuel to to um, to the to King Saul. You remember that famous confrontation where he says, well, "I'm hearing sheep in the background. What's that all about?" And well, you know, I was trying to obey the Lord, and you know what? Obeying is better than sacrifice. Uh, and so, in that story, it was the prophet who took a sword and killed Agag. But Saul was rejected for his failure to obey the Lord thoroughly. The nation needed a better king, one who would obey God in every respect. Only that kind of king could bring the promise of God's deliverance. The next king in line was David, a man after God's own heart. But as great of a deliverer as David was, he wasn't the one to save God's people and establish the kingdom forever. We've noted already God promised David there'd be a descendant of his who'd be the one to sit on the throne. So what are we seeing in Esther but an installment of the promise of a better king? God raised up a better king in this context. He raised up Esther as a ruler. He raised up Mordecai as a ruler. Esther's a lowly girl who gains the favor of the king. Esther brings deliverance to the nation at the price of her own death. You remember? She had to go into the presence of the king and she had to risk Death. So first she underwent a fast for three days and three nights, which we could consider a death fast. She embraced her own death, and then she purposed to enter the king's presence to intercede for her people, even though she knew she might die. And she said, if I die, I die. And so she brought deliverance to Israel as a ruler at the price of her own death. And Mordecai, again, Another ruler, the two of them working in concert. He's the one who's given the power of the kingdom because he gets the signet ring. He gets the ability to rule over the kingdom in such a way as to defeat the Jews' enemies and cause them to prosper. And Mordecai brings deliverance not just through, through death like Esther, but pointedly through the reversal of his own death. I hope you picked up on that as you remember the story of Mordecai in Esther. First, he was condemned to die by the enemy, the Amalekite, Haman, the Agagite. And then instead, he rises to power and he crushes that enemy thoroughly. Thoroughly right down to Haman's ten sons. And Mordecai inherits the rank and the property of Haman. So he he reigns over, through this reversal, he reigns over the complete destruction of the Agagite. It's a reversal of what happened before. And, and so the, these kings are raised up by God to deliver the Jews. To deliver the Jews. Remember, they're called Jews because they're exiles from Judah. It's a reminder that there are people who have a promise, but they're not in possession of what they've been promised. They're not in their land. They don't have a king. They don't have a kingdom. But here is God raising their hopes of restoration, even despite all this, by raising up these rulers and causing them to, to uh, be delivered through these, through these rulers. Now, all this... It's a sovereign work of God who, who intervenes to show that the pro promise of salvation is still in effect. Their exile is not actually over. Not personally. But they're shown that God still reigns. They're shown that God keeps his word. They're shown a, a promise-keeping installment from God to know that things are still on track. So the raising up of 
Esther and Mordecai shows the children of Israel that God keeps his promise. And if, if raising up the kings shows that God keeps his promise, the way God keeps it, shows, it shows them what happens next shows them the how God keeps his promise. Because the kings that he raised up metaphorically are victorious through the reversal of fortunes. That's why I wanted that particular portion, those portions of the story, to be read by our, by our brother. God demonstrated that his power is seen through his sovereign ability to reverse things, to reverse fortunes in human affairs in order to keep his promise. God can turn impossible-looking situations upside down in order to do as he pleases, which means in order to get what he purposes, keep his promise. If, if he can displace Ahasuerus, king of the Medes and Persians, with all his pomp and worldly glory, and can raise up a lowly Jewish girl and a condemned man, then he can reverse any situation and keep his promise. God is able to overturn impossible-looking circumstances and bring his people of promise out on top to give them the big win. And that's God's way. Esther is showing us that that's God's way. We, we saw that in two things most clearly, that reversal of the impossible is God's way of triumph. We saw it in, uh, in chapter 8. The reversal of an irrevocable law. When, when Esther got the favor of the king, Mordecai gets the signet ring. It says, Esther 8.8 8 reads, You may write, Hezuerus said, You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. You're supposed to remember. Wicked Haman had manipulated King Ahasuerus into signing a law that authorized the complete destruction of all the Jews in all the empire to annihilate them. The law of the Medes and the Persians can't be revoked. You don't just get to repeal one of those laws. So their doom appears inevitable and unavoidable. But what does the text of Esther say that we read today? Chapter 9, verse 1. In the twelfth month, the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The reverse occurred. That's the theme of Esther. The reverse occurred. It's because a second law was put into effect. A law that trumped the first law. The first law still stood, but it couldn't prevail to destroy the Jews. Now the Jews were authorized to kill their enemies instead. And God caused the fear of the Jews to fall upon people everywhere. The reverse occurred. Indeed, the irrevocable law was reversed by a better law. Death was reversed 
into life. Defeat was reversed into a victory. And, and it included the reversal of death and shame and a reversal of who holds power. Because in Esther chapter 5, if you just turn over and scan through verses 9 to 14, I'm not reading the whole book this morning, I'm summarizing. But this is right in the text. Here's Haman in Esther 5, verses 9 to 14. He believes that he is the object of King Ahasuerus and Queen Esther's special favor, that he, of all people, is worthy of the highest honors. And here he is about to be the featured guest at a private banquet thrown by Esther for just him and the king. He's flying high. And, and what's more, <clears throat> his hatred... A Mordecai who wouldn't pay homage to him, wouldn't tip his hat to him. His bitterness toward Mordecai had led him to use his great power at his wife's urging to just construct a gallows 50 cubits high and have Mordecai hanged on it the next day. He made that decision. He slept well that night. He was happy as a clam. This is great. I'm the best in the land. I'm at the honored feast. I'm honored at the feast. Mordecai is going to hang in the morning. But this, this man who used his power to shame and kill his enemy was about to see it all reversed. And he did see it all reversed. Because when he gets to the banquet, Esther exposes Haman as a threat against the Jews. And all at once, bang, Mordecai fell. He fell from pomp and glory to groveling for his life, begging this little Jewish girl not to have him killed, falling all over her on the couch. And they come in and grab him and cover his face and take him out. We see the reversal of Mordecai's shame as his shame falls on Haman. We see the reversal of Mordecai's death as his death falls on Haman. And we see the reversal of Haman's power. Because if you jump over to chapter 7, uh, verse 9, and, and into chapter 8, we read these things. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Haman is hanged. Mordecai gets Haman's house. And the king's ring, all that is the reversal of fortunes where God effects salvation in the face of what's impossible. We also see how the king's victory saves the nation and at the same time destroys, destroys the enemy. Because as we read already, Mordecai with the signet ring, he now authorizes the defense of the Jews, and it became a rout. Four comments in, in verses 1 to 15 of chapter 9. Four things stand out that happened. No one could stand against them. The fear of them had fallen on all the people. The fear of Mordecai had fallen on all the rulers. And Mordecai grew more and more powerful. All of that 
is what we mean by the great reversal. This victory is a true installment of God's promise. That's what it is. And this kingdom victory is won even while it's understood that the kingdom fullness is not resolved. We, we rightly say the Jews were saved that day. The promise of restoration from exile was preserved in advance. Is it a full victory? Yes. It's not a final victory. But it's a full victory. It could hardly be represented as a more comprehensive victory than it is in the writing of the book of Esther. Right down to the fact that people all around them are falling all over themselves in order to be considered Jews. They've gone in such a rapid reversal to, from kill all the Jews to I'm a Jew. <laughs> we, we mustn't look, overlook every Mede and every Persian knew that day that the Jews were the big winners. And as a full victory, it was more than worthy of a great and perpetual remembrance and celebration. It, it, it shouldn't be overlooked. The, the book of Esther, just on the surface of it, exists to explain and defend the Feast of Purim. That's what it seems to be for. It's very obvious. That's where the book ends. You pick up in chapter 9, verse 20, and we see how the celebration and remembrance of this kingdom victory is instituted. Chapter 9, verse 20 and following. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. All the Jews in all the provinces of the known world were commanded by Mordecai to keep an annual day of feasting, of gladness, of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. And the rationale is very simple. It's right there in what we read. We're celebrating a day, he said, when we got relief from our enemies. We're celebrating a day when we were turned from sorrow to gladness. And we were delivered from mourning into a holiday. And Listen, this Feast of Purim also needs to be seen by us as a celebration of the, put it in quotes, the lot that falls to God's people. I point that out because of the name. Pick it up in Esther 9 and verse 23 and just listen a little bit. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. 
and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Haman, it says, had cast poor, had cast lots. That's casting these stones or bones or dice we might think of them as. It's, it's, Haman was casting lots superstitiously to determine the best day to destroy all the Jews. What Haman didn't know, but what Israel needed to know, is that Proverbs 16 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God has sovereign control over, the, over every cast of the lot. You know, when the Bible tells us that the Lord Almighty allots or apportions to his people their inheritance that he promised, it's called their lot. We still speak that way. We talk about, oh, that's his lot in life. And we mean that's the situation this guy's been assigned to and he has to live with. We usually say it negatively. Well, that's just his lot in life. Too bad. But, of course, the message of redemption is that there are no random lots. God apportions to his people the blessings that he chooses and promises to give. He allots that to them. It was already the Jews' lot in life. It was already their apportioned inheritance to be given life by God, to be given a land by God, an inheritance by God, to be given a king who is a deliverer from God. Haman thought that the lot could favor him. If you will pardon a terrible pun, Haman was dead wrong. The lot belongs to the Lord. Certainly doesn't belong to Haman. And the sovereign throw of the lot, I'm saying to you, Esther is saying to you, the sovereign throw of the lot belongs to the Lord's people. As he determines, he allots good to his people. Therefore, the Feast of Purim, which is the Feast of Lots, is a feast of celebration and of remembrance when the lot fell favorably to the Lord's people. It is a perpetual reminder that God cannot fail to allot to his people what he has promised to allot to them. They can celebrate that. They ought to celebrate that. They ought to celebrate that in joy and in the fear of the Lord, as they did in Esther's day. Joyful and fearful that God has done this great thing. Now, I know this is obvious to so many of you who are listening to our series through Esther. You've been hearing these sermons week by week. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what's prophesied through these events in Esther. This very real deliverance that God provided for his people is itself a forward-looking prophecy. It is a partial fulfillment. It is an installment of the salvation that God had always promised to his people. So the promise of deliverance stands. 
Deliverance from death. Deliverance through a king. Deliverance into a prosperous and safe kingdom. Through Esther. Through Mordecai. God was reminding them that he can do the impossible. He can reverse the fortunes that are in place and turn them to the opposite in order to keep his word. And so this deliverance at God's hand points forward to a king who was still to come. It spoke reassuringly of a kingdom yet to be established, complete with a temple where God dwells in the midst of the people. This deliverance spoke of the defeat of God's enemy, and there's not just earthly kings, but the devil himself. It spoke of the defeat of sin and death, and the rescue of people condemned by an irrevocable law. It spoke of Jesus, who is the better king. It speaks of the needed king who keeps faith with God, the triumphant king who fights and wins for them. For us, Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. He is the king who was to come. And I'm saying to you this morning, he came. Jesus came. So Jesus is the king who is the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. He is the king who is the son of David. And he came and he established his kingdom which lasts forever. His saving work for us was the reversal of a death order for the lawful condemnation of covenant breakers. Jesus took the exile of sinners onto himself as he died on the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, the Father sent him into exile. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that in order to deliver His people of promise. That's the reversal. And listen, I'm saying, believers, we are his people. He died in our place. He died our death. Christ's mindset was as Esther's mindset was. If I die, I die, but I will intercede for my people. And so he did die. And he did intercede for his people. And God did extend favor to him. And we live in that favor. Jesus interceded for the people of God. The Father extended the scepter to him. The Father heeded his plea for deliverance. The decree of the gospel went out, which trumps the decree of the law of condemnation and triumphs over the order of death. So King Jesus wins. (laughs) He delivers and he establishes his kingdom. I want to be very plain to some of you on this point. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, you're the one that's still under the order of death. And you deserve it. And I might sound a little mean. You've got nothing to celebrate. The devil wants you dead. You remain in bondage. You remain in exile. You have one hope. It's remarkable that you have a hope. There's one hope. Namely, God's deliverance through Christ's reversal of fortunes that's accomplished at the cross of which we've been speaking. Now, in Esther's day, many came to fear the power of Mordecai. 
as he implemented God's reversal. And many declared themselves Jews, as I said earlier, in order to enter into that blessing and get on the winning side. The gospel call to you today who are outside of Christ is the opportunity for you to align yourself with the king and get on the winning side. That's what it is. You get to declare yourself a Jew by faith. The salvation that Christ has accomplished is open to you by faith only. You can only see it with the eyes of faith. You can only understand it with the understanding of faith. You can only enter into it by the exercise of faith. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. You got to be born from above. You got to be born of the Spirit, or you can't see the kingdom and you can't enter the kingdom. Faith in Christ is the means of seeing and entering. God causes the sinner to be born again, born of the Spirit, and by faith, the sinner enters into God's kingdom. That faith is the gift of God. The exercise of faith is to lay hold of Christ and lay hold of his saving work. The hook on that is this morning, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. That means the conditions of faith are in play right now because we're preaching the word of Christ. And I'm wondering if you hear it, my unbelieving friend. Can you hear it? Will you believe it? Some of you know all the facts of this salvation, but apparently you haven't heard it yet. You haven't entered into it yet. Now what we're talking about is miraculous, but it's very simple. If you can hear this gospel today, and if you can embrace it by faith alone in your heart, you will be saved. And I'm just wondering, is God opening your eyes and ears today? Are you seeing Christ as the saving king? Are you hearing his offer of forgiveness, his offer of rescue from death, of a new heart, his offer of a new power through the gift of the Holy Spirit, his offer of membership in his family, in his kingdom? The offer is genuine. The call is plain. Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Only spiritual dullness holds people back. Only rebellious pride keeps people away from this blessing. So if you don't think you need it, I am quite sure you will not have it. But if you've come at last to see your need of it, and you've come at last to understand the one and only solution to your crisis, then I say Christ is here for you today. You kids, teenagers, refugees from the youth retreat, still comes down to you needing Jesus for many of you. And I wonder if you can hear his voice. 
His victory is yours today for the taking by faith. So I say, will you come to Christ today? Will you repent from your former sins in favor of running to Christ to be saved? Because Jesus is receiving sinners today. So I plead with you for Jesus' sake to turn from sin and come to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible assures you that if you do, you'll be saved. Now we've learned from Esther that Jesus is also the institutor of the celebration of his victory. We're reminded that this feast of Purim, which celebrates the Jews' deliverance from death, anticipates a final feast of celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I want you not to lose sight of how it anticipates the institution of a perpetual feast of remembrance and celebration already that comes to us from Christ. Those Jews were called to celebrate their deliverance in perpetuity, even though their deliverance was not final. They were to celebrate it while they lived in Persia. They were to celebrate it when they came back to the land. They were to celebrate it as a done deal, even while its final expression was still to come. Is that too subtle for you to grasp? Our celebration of Christ's victory is of this nature. Jesus instituted one feast for us. He instituted the celebration of the Lord's Supper given to us in remembrance of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And it is to be celebrated in anticipation of his coming again. But I don't want you to misinterpret that in your mind. That doesn't mean that we observe the Lord's table until there's something to celebrate. There is already something to celebrate. There's already something that demands a celebration. Jesus has triumphed over sin, death, and the devil. That is not in dispute. That is not to be overturned. That is a done deal. That's the big win. It's already true, even if it's not yet fully realized. It's here. Jesus crushed the serpent's head. Jesus has transferred us, the Bible says, from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. He's done that. Jesus has ushered in the resurrection from the dead in his own resurrection as the first fruits. We've already been raised to walk in newness of life. So we are warranted, and I say we are commanded, to enter into this celebration. We get to celebrate as often as we like, as often as we gather. We gather around his table. As often as we gather, we gather before the throne of the king. The fact that he is coming again for final judgment does not mean that the ruler of this world hasn't been judged already. The fact that he is coming again to receive us to himself doesn't mean that he's not already with us. He's with us until the end of the age. As he said, 
We do not celebrate the absence of the Lord. We celebrate the victory of the Lord in His death who is with us. We live in hard times. We live in a hard world. But already the kingdom of our risen Lord has broken in. And joyful celebration is warranted. It's required. It's our privilege. We live our lives daily in the triumph of our king. Sin is not our master. The devil is not our despot. Death is not our destiny. We're already citizens of heaven. We're already in the new creation. We don't have to choose between setting our hope on the joy and fullness to come and rejoicing today with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We get to do both. The Bible says we've not seen him, but we believe him. And so we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, how might this look for us? Well, this remembrance, this celebration, in addition to gathering around the Lord's table, what else could a celebratory life look like? Well, I think we live with joy in the freedom of the king's new law for us. The gospel has overturned the death curse of the law. We live free to obey the king. So I want you to learn to look at your new repentance and your obedience, not as a painful duty and a difficult struggle. I know fighting sin is hard, but to see it as a delightful privilege that it is. And I think some of you don't look at it that way. Obedience to Christ is our delight. We get to do what other people can't do. We get to serve a king who we love. We have power to do what others only wish they could do. How sweet to know That not only are we rescued by a benevolent ruler, but we're able to be a delight to him. We can please him according to his will and in his power. And and again, I think with joy we can serve as agents of the king's final victory. Because Christ's victory, as I said, is present. It's presently rolling out over the land. He's in the process of extending his rule, of rescuing souls, gathering people into the community of his people. Now, does that sound like I'm trying to slip in a little triumphalism? We go around thinking we're better than the world. We're the big winners in this life and everybody else is nothing. No, I'm, I'm saying we, we, we may still be considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but we have good news for sinners. That's pretty cool. And I wonder if you look at the task of evangelism that way. I wonder if you look at the task of evangelism as the undesirable work that you would rather somebody else did. Or an intimidating task that you don't feel the least qualified to do? Or can you see it as the privilege of being on God's winning side in the universal conflict with sin with the surprising notion that today at least we don't have to regard any of the people of the world as enemies. They're only objects of rescue. You know, so long as you feel like in evangelism you're out there selling something and nobody wants to buy it, that's not going to help you engage in the task. If you think you're out there picking a fight with somebody, that's not going to help you want to get into it. You're not going to have much energy for that. But if you can see it as extending rescue to people who are in terrible trouble, that might change your attitude toward it. And and I think this. I think a celebratory life, a life in which we celebrate the victory of Christ, 
might just look like renouncing your pessimism and your cynicism over the things that you see in this world and in your circumstances in favor of believing that Jesus, our King, has won our salvation. He has reversed fortunes for us at the cross and therefore there is nothing left that can stand in the way of his fully realized victory. So that might look like you not being so grumpy about what you don't like when you see it. A more celebratory life might help you to accept the brother or sister whose life annoys you. Because Jesus has already reversed sin's curse and grip on them. Their perfection in Christ is assured. It might look like you not feeling the need to be so critical. As though your calling were to be a commentator on world events. And, and on the progress of your brothers and sisters. And so you might be just asking, Craig, are you just telling me just to never mind all the junk and the horrible stuff that I see? Just let it all go. Not exactly. I'm telling you that Jesus Christ, in keeping God's salvation promise, has already done all the work to fix all the junk and horrible stuff that you see. Jesus isn't soft on sin. He doesn't leave things not tied up and books not balanced. He's the one who has authorized the perpetual celebration. You can have a biblical warrior's mindset without being an angry and judgmental warrior. You can have a, a biblical, um, I'm a soldier on active duty mindset without a take no prisoners and shoot the wounded kind of a mindset. <laughs> We're on active duty, granted, but our king has won. Give him that. So you can hate your own sin without being disheartened and discouraged by it. You can have joy in your heart every day, on your worst day, on account of Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil. And we can do that together, brothers and sisters. It is not superficial Christianity to celebrate what Christ has done, while at the same time we are surrounded by evidences of things that are not fully resolved. It is deep Christianity to do that. You have a reason to celebrate. You have a right to celebrate. You have an obligation to celebrate. So my brother, my sister, isn't it good news? Will you agree with me that it's good news that Jesus has turned everything upside down for our salvation? Shall we not celebrate him and his work? May God give us the grace to celebrate the victory of Christ and to keep the celebration until he comes. Let us pray to that end. Father in heaven, give grace to us, the blessed recipients of the finished work of Christ who came as the surety for us, who came in keeping your promise to us and who has triumphed over our enemies for us give us grace to celebrate him in our lives i pray for it in jesus name amen